Nello, folks. Fall season will soon be upon us, and that means school for the little ones, Halloween, and all the other frightening things that happen as the night grows longer. Don't miss the latest episode of Chilling Tales for Dark Nights airing on Mondays. And of course, don't forget Horror Hill with Eric Peabody, Fear from the Heartland with Paul J. McSorley, and Drew Blood's Dark Tales. You can find them all at simplyscarypodcast.com, on YouTube, or your favorite podcasting service. Or be sure to visit the ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com website and become a patron and hear extended episodes from our vast audio archive. Slow down just a little bit and join us for a scary good time. We're waiting for you. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening! You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome, dear listeners, to Season 13, Episode 17. I'm your host, Otis Jarry, and in this episode, I'll be performing four tales to terrify you, courtesy of author Jay Campbell. Tonight, we'll hear stories of heinous honey, despondent dads, peculiar punishers, and hungry homesteads. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show's about to begin. <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs, or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Getting stung by high prices. Well, let me tell you folks about a fellow who 
knows all the buzz around town with his new product. It's so delightful that you'll be... Oh, I'm terribly sorry. I'll have to take some medicine. I have a very low tolerance for insect-related puns. In any event, we have a story about a treat everyone wants to know more about. You might even say it's dripping with mystery. Without further ado, I present to you The Honeyed Lies of Jameson March. When Jameson March, owner of March Mortuaries, put a sign out in front of his business saying that he'd be selling honey, people thought it must be a joke. What kind of mortician would sell honey? Would he sell it next to the caskets in his showroom? Would he offer it graveside at the ceremony? No one knew, but there was much speculation about that little sign. Those who asked Jameson were in for quite a treat. Jameson told them that he would be selling his honey right here at the mortuary and even gave them a sample so they might tell their friends. What they sampled was supposedly the best honey any of them had ever eaten. They went on and on about the texture and the taste and the strange exotic flavors within the honey. They said how they couldn't wait for Jameson to sell his honey and they'd be buying as much as they could on the opening day. Others began to question where he was keeping his bees. They saw no beehives on his property, a two-bedroom apartment above the mortuary. They saw no hives on the mortuary property at all, in fact. They saw no hives in the cemetery or near the crematorium, but still the honey came. On the 3rd of March, the first jar of that miraculous concoction appeared in the front room of Jameson's mortuary. The mortuary was crowded for the next several days, and by Friday not a jar was left to be purchased. Again, people praised the texture and the taste, as well as the myriad flavors that one would find within the jar. One of the buyers, Bert Lancaster, owned a large honey operation of his own, and it said that when he tasted Jameson's honey, he proclaimed that no bee in his field had ever produced anything so sweet. Some would tell you that he burned his beehives that very afternoon, but that's a little more than town gossip. For that summer, back in 1986, no one could get enough of Jameson's honey. They say Helen Price used that honey to defeat her rival, Linda Moore, in that summer's Fourth of July dessert bake-off. They say Bert Cavill put the honey in his mead and couldn't make enough of it to satiate the local drunks. They say Mary Sanders was taken to the hospital over at Oakley when she ate ten jars in a day and was reaching for an eleventh when her stomach ruptured. But again, that was all town gossip. But the fact is, it was the discovery made by Randall Smith, a local tabloid writer, in the fall of 86. Randall had a reputation of being less of a journalist and more of a mudslinger. There was a nasty rumor started. Randall could usually be traced back to it. He'd grown pretty tired of hearing about Jameson and his amazing honey. Randall was of the opinion that if something was too good to be true, then it likely was. He thought Jameson's honey must have been some sort of secret ingredient that got it people addicted to it. Maybe it was even a cover for some kind of dope operation Jameson was running out of the mortuary or the cemetery. Whatever the case, Randall could smell the story, and it would be sweeter than any nectar the old mortician could produce. So, one night, as the moon hung full over Pleasant Rest Cemetery, Randall and his friends, Rooster Mallory and Charles Drainer, took a trip out to the cemetery to have a look around. Someone had reported earlier that week that they'd seen some larger-than-normal bees around the cemetery grounds and speculated that these may be the source of Jameson's honey. It was the only lead that Randall had and seemed as good as a lead as any. So after a couple of drinks at the Legion Hall, three men piled into Rooster's old Chevy and headed down to do some late-night snooping. Randall still tells anyone who will listen how the graveyard was as silent as its namesake. 
The gate was locked, sporting a brand new Academy security lock, one of the big, thick gold ones that graced the sheds and fences of discerning security buffs in town. So, the three men had to find a different way in. This was strange, since the cemetery had never been locked before. Jameson always let people come and go as they pleased. But just recently, the old man had gotten a little cagey about many things. For one, the cemetery was now locked after nightfall. For another, no one was allowed in the basement of the mortuary, not even the man who came to deliver the bodies from the families. And the third... No one but his two sons were allowed to work in the mortuary anymore. Both of them were under pain of death should they reveal the secret of Jameson's honey. The three men had walked around the cemetery fence before they found a spot where the last windstorm had knocked down a thick old pine. It lay on the sharp points around the top, creating a rude bridge over the wall. None of them, being particularly spry, they all had... uh, to carefully shimmy up the fallen tree and then drop down into the cemetery, careful not to get stuck on the spikes. They all felt a chill as they stood in the quiet boneyard, and Randall claimed that Rooster looked ready to brave the spikes if it meant being out of there. The wind rattled the skeletal trees in the grounds, and little flags that had been stuck on some of the graves for Labor Day snapped mischievously and startled them more than once. They'd brought flashlights, but the big old trader's moon that looked down on them was more than enough to keep them from tripping into an open grave or smashing their shins on an ill-placed tombstone. A quiet cemetery was enough to sober even the bravest of men, and it was probably why they heard the shovels before they saw the man. Crouching behind a particularly large family headstone, Randall saw two men digging in a fresh grave, They were exhuming a body by the light of that pregnant moon, and Randall knew whose it was to boot. He'd been to Widow Hadley's funeral that day, and it appeared that, whoever these men were, they were taking her from her freshly dug plot. As they watched, the corpse flopped to the surface unceremoniously, followed by March's sons, Hannibal and Gavin. Hannibal hefted the body, leaving his younger brother fell in the hole as he took it deeper into the cemetery. Gavin went to his work, and bent as he was. He didn't notice the three men as they snuck around and followed his older brother. Hannibal had been a football player, a linebacker, for the local high school team in his day. He toted the frail old woman as easily as someone might a sack of grain. And they followed him. The three men weren't sure what they expected to find, But Randall was certain it would be something that would add a macabre twinge to the story he was working on. They followed Hannibal as he came to a newly built mausoleum, the name across the door reading March. He unlocked the door and, unceremoniously, tossed the old woman into the crypt. The men hunkered low behind a pair of tombstones, but they needn't have bothered. Hannibal was a big boy, but his night eyes left something to be desired. He no more saw then than he did the place marker that he nearly tripped over on the way back to his brother, and as he stomped off into the cemetery, the three men approached the crypt. The mausoleum was a nice new one, sunk into the ground a little to protect any caskets placed down there. It would have looked more at home in New Orleans than this Georgia backwater town. To the knowledge of anyone in town, the Marches didn't have a family crypt until very recently. The only March buried there would be Jameson's wife, since his mother and father were buried up in Macon at their own family plot. Hannibal may not have been the smartest March in town, but it appeared he was smart enough to lock up behind himself. Another one of those big, thick locks that had been found on the front gate greeted them, and the three men were forced to brawl around the mausoleum to see what they could find. It was Charles who found the little vent in the mausoleum, but it was Randall who saw the horrors that lay inside. Randall and Rooster had been looking for a window or perhaps another entrance when Charles had come hoofing it back to them to say that he had found a little vent that opened into the crypt. Randall asked him to show them where it was, 
and the three men found a little opening big enough for a large child to fit inside. Charles and Rooster were pulpwooders, much too big to squeeze into holes. However, Randall made a career out of squeezing into places he wasn't wanted. Opting to stick his head in to get a better look, Randall had his friend hold his legs while he shimmied into the vent. Charles and Rooster slid him in as far as they could, and they said his flashlight could be seen through the slats at the top of the mausoleum. When Randall started screaming and yelling at them, to pull him out it sounded like the devil himself had gotten a hold of him. When they pulled him out, they said he was white as a sheet and said they had to tell the sheriff immediately. Whether the brothers were gone, when they made their escape or not, they missed them entirely as they beat a retreat back to town. The sheriff took some convincing to get him out of bed, but when Randall told him what he had seen down in the crypt, he came with three other men and the biggest set of bolt cutters they could find at the station. Jameson's sons were leaving when the sheriff and the boys pulled up, so they didn't end up needing the bolt cutters after all. When he laid it out to the two young men that they could either cooperate or sit in the same prison cell that their father was about to occupy, they decided it might be in their best interest to show him what they'd been doing. When the sheriff asked the boys if they would need suits, the two shook their heads. The bees are mostly docile, Hannibal told him, and sure enough, when they cracked the door, not a one of them came charging out. They descended into the ground, and by the light of the sheriff's flashlight, they saw the horrors below. The bees swarmed a small pile of corpses, taking whatever they used to make the honey back to the hives. The hives covered the walls of the crypt, making a sticky webwork of combs. Corpses down below were fresh, most of them having died very recently, and the bees were taking to them with gusto. The brothers said they came down once or twice a week to harvest the honey and that the vulture bees were taking to the warm Georgia summers quite nicely. When the sheriff interrogated them, both of them said it had been their father's idea. He'd read about the vulture bees and thought they sounded like an interesting idea. Then, when their mother died, he did a little experiment. He'd put her in the mortuary basement and procured some vulture bees of his own. The boys had been horrified when he showed them what he'd been up to, but even they had to admit the honey had been the sweetest they'd ever eaten. Something about the readily available nature of the local pollen mixed with the bees' instinct to collect whatever they got from the corpses had made for a potent and delicious treat. She was the catalyst for all this, Hannibal had said. Those first few jars he handed out to the people for tasting were honey made from Mom's body. He began to cry then, but the sheriff had all the evidence that he needed to proceed. He arrested Jameson March that very night. There seemed to be some confusion on what to charge him with. Couldn't really get him for murder because he hadn't killed anybody. Couldn't really get him for fraud because he'd buried those bodies just like he said he would. In the end, they got him on simple corpse desecration and misdemeanor fraud for not telling the families what he intended to do with the bodies. He got less than five years in prison, and I hear that the warden let him keep the beehives in the prison garden. Seems like his talents didn't go to waste even behind bars. He left town when his time was served, he and his boys. The home has been empty ever since. The police found the beginnings of his beekeeping in the basement. That, in the secondary hive with a swarm of angry vulture bees. Jameson tried to sell the mortuary, but nobody seemed to want the place with that sort of reputation. It collapsed under a late February snow back in 2012, and they destroyed the mausoleum they found all those bodies in about a year after Jameson went to prison. And that's the sordid tale of Jameson March and his bees. I have no idea what they did with those bees after they turned them out of the March mausoleum. They likely just turned them loose into an environment that was alien to them. So if you should be traveling through Georgia's back roads and see some larger than average bees or taste sweeter than average honey, be very suspicious about its origins. I 
hope you enjoyed The Honeyed Lives of Jameson March by Jay Campbell, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help support him by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash j-campbell. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash j-c-a-m-p-b-e-l-l. Stories galore available for your delights under his Reddit handle, Erushus. Or you can see his own collection of self-narrated wonders at Dr. Plague World, available on YouTube. Be sure to check out his works and subscribe as necessary. Thanks again for your support of this program and tonight's featured author. You know, I've looked into those bees, and the thing is, they're real. Now, whether you would find their taste to be honey as good as the people in our story do, it's important to remember vulture bees are real. Pleasant dreams, everyone. Now, our last story dealt with the dead. But what about the missing? Sometimes that's even worse because there's no closure, nothing definitive, only an ever present maybe. Then again, even if we could get an answer, would we be prepared for the reason why it happened in the first place? Without further ado, I present to you, I miss you, Daddy. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I can't explain it, but he's been here the whole time. No one believed me. My wife thought I was insane. But he's been here the whole time. My son, Dale, was five when he went missing. We were at the park by our flat when it happened. Park may be too grand a word for it, but that's what Dale always called it. In reality, it was a big plastic play structure with a couple of slides, a climbing wall, and a sand pit. The whole thing was surrounded by a 15 by 15 fence with a couple of benches for the parents to sit on. That's where I was that day, scrolling through Reddit and finishing my cigarette. Dale was playing with a couple of neighborhood kids, their parents sitting on other benches so they didn't have to breathe my smoke. I looked up in time to see them both go beneath the play structure into an area they call the cave. The cave is an enclosed area beneath the structure, with a roof that was comfortably close for a kid, downright claustrophobic for an adult. I heard my phone chirp and looked back down to see a text from my wife. She had just gotten home from work and wanted Dale and me to come home to help with groceries. So I pitched my cigarette over the fence and called for Dale. Come on, Dale. Mom wants us home. No response. Come on, Dale. If you can't listen, we won't be able to come back tomorrow. Usually, this would have brought him running. Playing outside was his favorite pastime, but there was still no answer. Both of his playmates came out of the other side, then giggling and laughing as they acted out whatever game they were playing, and I asked them where Dale had gone. Alicia, a dark-haired girl who was missing her front teeth, lisped, He's still in the cave, Mr. Dawith. So I hunkered my nearly six-foot frame down, looked into the dark underbelly of the play structure, and called for Dale to come on out. Come on, Dale, we really have to go. 
Mum's waiting on us. I still didn't think anything was amiss, other than Dale trying to squeeze in a few more minutes of playtime. I expected him to giggle and poke his head out, baiting me into chasing him or crawling into the cave. He knew that as big as I was, it would be funny to watch me try to get under the structure to run him out, and that was a game we often played. Instead, there was only silence. So I sighed and hunkered down on the damp sand to crawl under and get him. I heard the other two parents chuckle as they watched me, my back scraping at the bottom of the structure as I crawled toward the entrance of the cave. I didn't mind playing with Dale, but this was a little much. I was tired from my night shift the day before, and my back was sore from lifting freight all night. I resigned myself to having a stern talk with Dale on the way home while not listening, and crawled into the dark opening of the cave. As I passed from the lighted world outside, the afternoon sun cutting slants across my face through the boards of the structure as I entered the blackness of the cave, I felt a crawling sensation on my neck. I thought I might have picked up a spider and ran a hand over the spot to knock him off. There was nothing there, but the feeling wouldn't abate. It felt like my hackles were up, that ancient feeling of a predator nearby putting me on edge, and it took everything I had to keep dragging myself through the space. It was only about five feet of blackness, the space preternaturally dark, but it was the weirdest I'd felt in years. Was it always this dark in here? I'd crawled through here before, but I don't remember it being this black. Worse still, I didn't feel like I was alone in here. Of course I'm not, I reminded myself. I came in here to get Dale. As I crawled, though, I began to doubt that my son was still in here, in the sense that something else lived here wouldn't be easily put aside. I felt like something hateful lived here, something that was even now hungry and slobbering. My goal went from getting Dale to getting out of the space, and I came out the other side expecting to be dragged back in and consumed. I stood up, wiping dirt off my knees as the air puffed out of me loudly. It could have easily been mistaken for exertion, but I'd be a fool to pretend it was anything but fear. I expected my son to pop out and laugh at this silly old man then, but he was still nowhere to be found. Dale, I called, my voice becoming fearful after what I'd experienced. Dale! The other parents looked up, hearing the jagged quality of my voice, and rose up to see if everything was okay. I can't find my son, I told them, and they told me not to panic as we searched the play structure. My wife came walking up just as I started getting frantic, and she must have sensed my concern as she caught sight of me. She called the police then, and as I ran to check the woods, I heard her say that hateful phrase for the first time. Our son has gone missing. Please send help. Thirty minutes later, two cars pulled up, and a couple of officers came to render assistance. I'd searched behind the flats in the scraggy woods nearby, around the little retention pond that I always tried to keep Dale away from, and was just about to start knocking on doors when I saw them. They wanted to talk to me, me being the last to see Dale, and the officer in charge sent two of his men to check nearby houses as they asked me questions for the next few minutes. Where had I seen him? What was he wearing? Was there anyone suspicious around? Who were his mates? Where might he go if he'd left? Did he run away often? And all the time, they reassured me they would find him and not panic. I answered their questions, honestly, but knew he couldn't have left the park. Couldn't have. Dale was small for his age, I told them so, and despite all my misgivings with the flats we lived in, they'd done one thing I thanked them for. The clasp on the gate was too heavy for a little tag to push open. Dale had struggled with it before, and I knew he couldn't have left without help. The other parents said they hadn't seen him come out or seen anyone looking around the play park that day. So the police searched. They searched the play park, the surrounding flats, the woods, and the whole area, basically retreating with the ground I already walked on. As night began to fall, they called in more officers to begin canvassing wider. My wife and I were distraught. 
It was our first and only child, but as the days stretched on, it seemed less and less likely that they would find him. I'm not ashamed to say that I took Dale's disappearance poorly. My wife was stoic throughout it all, but I knew she was hurting too. She was her baby. She'd carried him for nine months. But I think she held a lot of her sorrow in because she saw me floundering. I became like a ghost in my own home. Eventually, I went back to work, but my performance suffered. It only takes a little effort to load things onto a truck. I was falling behind, missing quotas and making trucks late. The supervisor was a mate from primary school, fortunately, and he saw that I wasn't doing well. He suggested counseling and told me it might help, but I didn't want to tell some stranger about my problems. A year passed, my wife and I growing distant, as the days went by, and as the anniversary of Dale's disappearance drew closer, I finally really screwed things up at work. I can't even say it wasn't my fault, because it absolutely was. I was operating a lift, something I'd done since I got certified at 19, and as I backed out with a load, I hit a riser. It wasn't a bad hit, just a bump, really. The legs on that particular riser, as it turned out, getting ready to give way. The riser collapsed in spectacular fashion, and when it fell, it fell on one of my co-workers. He lived. They managed to get the pallets off him before they crushed him, but it broke his collarbone and he had to be hospitalized. My supervisor was furious, but I could tell he was trying to hold back in the face of my sincere grief. I'm recommending you for two weeks of unpaid leave. If it were anybody else, I'd hand them their walking papers here and now. But I know you need help more than you need a trip to unemployment. Take these two weeks, sort out your life, and return to work. If this happens again, mate, I ain't gonna have a choice. I couldn't look at him. His pity was worse than his anger. I knew I needed to do something. I nodded, mumbling a thank you, and showed me out of his office. I walked around for the rest of the night trying to figure out what I was going to tell my wife and finding nothing. She'd be mad, probably mad enough to finally leave me, but as the sun started peeking over the horizon, I knew there wasn't much else I could do, and she was just as mad as I thought she'd be. But her pity was just as hard to look at as my supervisors had been. He's gone. Dale's gone. Making yourself a martyr over it won't change the fact. You still have insurance. Get some counseling and figure this out. I need you back. Not just back at work, but back here. I miss him, too. But digging into those wounds won't make it better. Get some help, for both our sakes. There was something unsaid beneath that statement, and I understood it but wasn't sure what to do about it. I spent the next four days in a blackout state. I'd found my therapy at the bottom of a bottle, something I'd avoided up to that point. With no job to go to, I just stayed home and drank my pain away. My wife's patience finally ran thin. After two days of watching me hunker on the couch like a sock, she told me she was going to see her mother for a few days and suggested I sort myself out while she was gone. If I come home and you're still like this. I can't promise I'll be back for long. Once she was gone, I spent most of my days in a fermented haze. That's how, on the fifth day, I found myself buzzed and sitting on the same bench I had been on when I told Dale we needed to leave. It was early afternoon and the play park was empty, thankfully. It wasn't the first time I'd just come to sit here. And the other parents often found excuses to leave with their kids when I came to wallow in my grief. I was the sad father who came back to the place he'd suffered most. And I really hoped the park had been empty when I got here. Even in my current state, I didn't want anyone to see me like this. It was embarrassing. And it might frighten some of the children if I came weaving into the park smelling like a distillery. I was staring at the play structure, thinking to myself that it might be time to get some help when I first saw it. It was just eight words. 
Those words sobered me up faster than any cold shower could. On the side of one of the slides, in a rough marker, someone had written, Where have you gone, Daddy? I miss you. I just sat there, staring for what felt like an eternity. And as the tears came, the alcohol came as well. My tears fell nakedly into a pile of sick that sat between my legs, but as the rage bubbled up, it felt like they were almost burned away. Someone was mocking me, mocking my son's loss. And as I staggered toward the super's office, I was madder than I had any right to be. Mr. Venders, the super for the complex, always reminded me of one of the hobbits from the Lord of the Rings. He was short, fat, had a curly brown ring of hair around the bald spot on his crown that got bigger every year, and when he sat at his desk, it was like a child sitting at his father's chair. He nearly fell out of that chair when I slammed the door to his office open, and his expression of confused anger became one of confused fear as he looked at my face. He was a small man, and the sight of a large angry drunk in his office reminded him of his statue rather quickly. Someone has written hateful graffiti on your play park slide. I want to know what you intend to do about it. It took a minute or two to collect his thoughts before asking what the hell I was talking about. I took him out to look at it, leading him to the slide in question. And he looked, taken aback as he read the words. Who would do such a thing? He asked, more to himself than anyone. The way he side-eyed me, I could tell that he thought I might have done it. But one look at my face made him rethink it before he said it. I'll take care of this immediately, Mr. Doss. In the meantime, why don't you go home and rest? You seem to be under the weather. He had the decency not to call me a drunk out in the open, and I conceded the matter as I went home to sober up a little. As night began to fall some undetermined amount of time later... I sat up from the couch and listened to five of six stout cans rattle angrily to the floor. By the headache and the mealy taste of my mouth, I had not gone home and sobered up. As I moved into the kitchen to make something for dinner, I remembered the words in the slide and felt angry all over again. As the meat pie I had taken from the freezer spun in the microwave, I wondered if Vinder had taken care of it like he said. I wondered if he would paint over it or wash it off or how he'd do it. Were the words still sitting there on that slide? As the microwave dinged, I resolved to go find out and took my pie and plastic fork on a little field trip. I watched the stream roll off the top as I walked down to the little park, the night air alive with crickets and nightbirds. It would have been a pretty evening if I hadn't been so in my despair. Trees were losing their autumn leaves, becoming bare and skeletal, and the air was crisp enough to make my undershirt inadvisable. My bare feet slapped at the concrete as I walked away from my flat, and the closer I got, the better the view of the offending slide. The words were gone, the pressure washer, having left the slide a little lighter for its efforts. But as I came through the gate, I saw that something else had been added to the side of the structure. It looked like the same marker strokes, the handwriting big and childish, and as I read it, I felt a growl rumble in my throat. I saw you today, Daddy. I saw you, but you didn't see me. I looked around as the wind rattled the nearby trees, expecting to see a group of snickering youths as they watched me. This had teenager written all over it, and as the pie slipped out of my hand, I loosed my shout to the sky. Why? Why did they devil me like this? Was this a game to them? When I was a kid, we would never have thought of doing something like this to anyone, let alone a grieving father. The dark offered up no answers, but the side of the play park did when I turned back. Beneath the first message, another smaller message was written in the same childish scrawl. The longer I looked at it, the more I recognized it. How many times had I watched my son scribble words in his reader just that way, filling in the workbook pages and big lipping script as he prepared to go to kindergarten? Daddy, I can see you, but you can't see me. Please help me. It's scary here. 
I anchored on my knees in the sand, looking at the words as I ran my fingers over them. They looked just like his, and as I felt a splinter catch in the pad of my thumb, I pulled it back sharply. There was no way he could be here. There was no way he could have been hiding here for a year. As I watched the place set, I had no doubt that he'd been writing those words. Dale, I said, my voice quivering as I glanced into the shadowy depths of the playground. Dale! I shouted a little louder, casting around as I tried to find him. I walked around to the other side, stumbling in the gritty sand as it sucked at my feet. My head was full of rails and my words slurred even to my own ears. There were doubtless people looking through their curtains at me as I capered like a sot drunk, but I didn't care. My boy was here. He was here somewhere, and I needed to find him. I tripped then, going face down in the sand, and when I came up, I saw a new message under what looking plasterwood. It was hard to see in the shadow that it sat in, but as I got close, I put my trembling fingers on it to make sure it was real. My fingers came away tacky, the tips black, as if they had touched wet marker. I need you to come get me, Daddy. I'm stuck in the sad swamp, and I need help. Uh, excuse me, sir. Everything all right there? As their flashlights hit me, I squinted. The words were like a brand across my eyes. The sad swamps were what Dale called the swamps of sadness from his favorite movie, The Never-Ending Story. He watched it about a thousand times, and when the DVD I had owned as a kid finally broke in the VCR, we had searched for it on DVD until we found it at a local thrift store. He watched it every day before his afternoon nap, and I imagine he could just about quote it word for word. Seeing the words sad swamps made me certain it was Dale talking, but how? How could he be talking to me from... The light was right in my face now, and I had to put a hand up to block it. Some of your neighbors were worried you were faring poorly, Mr. Dawes. They heard you shouting and wanted us to check on you. They were being kind. It seemed that everybody was being kind these days to poor old drunk Mr. Dawes, but I didn't have time for them. I'd seen something under the edge of the play structure, half a word that was buried in shadows, was his latest message, and as I staggered towards it a little, I hoped it would tell me how to get him back. What happened? One of them asked in his tone, jovial as he leaned down. Wife lock you out after you come home snuggered? Well, we can get you a place to sleep it off, sir. Never put a hand on my shoulder, but I pulled away from him as I tried to see the words that were beneath the structure. It was just six words. I couldn't see the last one, and the last one seemed the most important. The police grabbed a hold of me, but I fought to get away as I tried to see that last word. I got as close as I could, both catching me under an arm as they pulled me away from the structure, and finally saw it. I repeated it again and again as they put me in the back of the car, all the fight out of me now, wanting to commit it to memory, before my drink-addled brain made me a muck of it. We'll phone the missus and let her know she can come pick you up in a tank, Mr. Dawes. If she don't want to, then I guess you're sobering up on a bench for the night, as long as you don't try any more of that. I ignored them as we left the parking lot, my flat disappearing behind us as I repeated those six words like a mantra. Look for me inside the cave. The police hadn't been wrong. My wife was livid. She came down to the station, her clothes clearly thrown on hastily, and glowered at me through the bars of the holding cell. It was just me in there with a few old gaffers, and they were snoring in a corner as I slouched on the bench. I was still imprinting those words in my brain, mumbling them like a magic spell when I heard her voice and looked up into her scowling face. I can't believe you've done this. It isn't enough that you get sent home from work that you do nothing but blunder around like an old tramp and won't get any help to get yourself out of this route. But now, now you go and get yourself tossed in the drunk tank. I'm done, Malcolm. Do you understand me? This was the last straw. I won't stay here and watch you destroy yourself. 
He's alive! I rasped out, and when she looked at me, I saw all the anger leak out of her, only to be replaced with pity. I miss him just as much as you do, but you have to let him go. It's been a year, Malcolm. He's not coming home. It wasn't your fault what happened to him, and you have to stop blaming yourself for it. He's been leaving me messages at the play park, Stephanie. I can prove it. Come with me and I'll show you. We can find him. We can be a family again. We can. But she cut me off with the first sob I heard from her in months. I'm leaving, Malcolm. When they release you in the morning, don't call. Go back to the flat, go to your mother's house, go to hell for all I care. I can't watch you do this anymore. She left me there with the other drunks, but I'd already decided what I had to do. They turned me loose in the morning, and after a brisk walk home, I got things I'd needed. I bought a torch, some string, a big hunting knife I'd had since I was a teenager, and set off for the play park. It was early morning, and I had the place to myself, save for the pigeons still gobbling at my spilled pie's remains. I didn't see any new graffiti, but I didn't need any. I knew where Dale was, and as I got on my hands and knees, I crawled under the playground and into the cave. Even in my assuredness, I felt foolish as I moved into the cave. It was dark, but I could still see the light streaming in from the other end. I didn't feel that same sense of foreboding like I had before. No sense of a monster coming to gobble me up. I turned on the torch as I checked out the corners. The cave was a box of four walls with a foot of thick plastic overhead. I should have been able to see all four walls. Three of the walls were normal enough, but as I looked at the west-facing wall, I was aware of another opening that led into a space that shouldn't exist. An opening between that led into deeper darkness. As my torch burned against that encroaching blackness, I turned my body in a ponderous circle and started crawling into it. If I meant to get my son back, I would need to hobble into the sad swamp and come out on the other side. In contrast to the dark cave behind me, the space I entered was pitch black. The edges of my light curled oddly. The darkness seeming to retract like felt as I moved deeper. I wasn't underground. I was still heading forward, but given the dimensions of the place structure, the place I crawled shouldn't exist. The length was wrong. The longer I crawled, the more I expected to wake up and find that I'd fallen asleep in the drunk tank. The space was cramped, but felt vast as it stretched on. It was like an underground cave claustrophobic passages threatening to collapse in on you at any minute. Besides being dark, it was also utterly silent. Beside the crunch of my knees as they moved over the sand, no other sound seemed to exist. My own labored breathing seemed to be absorbed by the thick midnight around me, and every painful drag of my body sent a spasm of need through me. It was a primal need, a need to stand at my full height and stretch my arms up high to dissipate the confining gloom that hung around me. The same part of my brain made it pretty clear, however, how bad an idea that it would be. What if my hand should pass into that darkness and never return? What if the darkness came back with the hand? I kept crawling into that inky soup, wondering if I'd simply wander here forever. It was pitch outside, protective beam of my torch, and with every struggling shuffle, I wondered why I didn't turn out and go back. Nothing could survive down here. Nothing could live in this pitch blackness. If I didn't go back now, I would never find my way and be forced to wander endlessly in this void until my torch went out, and then what? I knew I wasn't alone when I heard the soft scuff of feet on sand. I looked into the black expanse expecting to see the beast that had terrified me the last time and finding nothing. The beam of my torch didn't go very far, but at the very end of the light, I could hear the scruff of bare feet on sand. Something was coming towards me, and I wasn't sure what I was hoping to find. Would it be my son, or would it be a monster to end my journey? 
when a dirty, half-starved little boy buried me in a hug that circled my shoulders, I knew I'd found him. Tail, I whispered, but he could only nod and cry against me. I didn't waste time or breath. I just scooped him up and didn't stop moving until I was back in the lighted world of the play park. As we moved, I could feel that clawing, penetrating glare from behind me. Something had noticed I was taking their prize, and they were unhappy. I kept crawling, kept pulling, but I could hear those scrabbling feet as they kicked up sand. They were getting closer now, their growl loud and thunderous, and on a whim, I turned my torch on them. Bathed in the light, they yelped wildly and kicked up sand as they backpedaled. I didn't dare look to see what had been tailing me. I put on a burst of speed, crawling like our lives depended on it. And when I collapsed in the light of day, I was aware of people shouting at me to get out of there. The kids were asking who I was and why I was so dirty, and they must have thought I was a bum. When they saw Dale, they tried to take him from me. But I held on like my life depended on it, and when they finally recognized us, I heard their anger turn to surprise. They took us both to the hospital, and I'm glad to say that aside from being underfed and very dirty, Dale was completely fine. My wife came to the hospital, and we both cried as she apologized for doubting me. I refused it, telling her she had nothing to apologize for. I doubted myself. I fell into the bottle and nearly lost myself in my grief. I should be apologizing to you, putting you through all this for the last year. She sat with me at the hospital, both of us afraid to take our eyes off Dale, as he sat placidly in his hospital bed. I asked him about what he'd gone through, but he couldn't tell me much. He said that he got lost in the cave and he crawled and crawled until he came out in the play park again. Only it wasn't his play park. The play park he found was different, and me and his friends were gone. The sky was sort of purple, and the clouds were too thick-looking to be real. I couldn't get the gate open, but that was probably good. There were these big things that would come by like living shadows, and they would look at me like how we look at animals in the zoo. I drank some water from a gross puddle, but there was no food. I sometimes went to sleep in the caves, but I always felt like something was watching me there. It never tried to hurt me, but it always felt like I was hiding and waiting for someone to catch me. I thought I was going to starve before I heard you breathing in the cave. I had to run away to get away from some shadowy people who were looking at me. And I heard you down there, and I went to see what the sound was. I asked him about the messages, and he said he found a marker of some sort in the sun in the other play park. It was about the time he'd started seeing a shadow inside the park. I knew it was you, I just knew it, but you couldn't see me. So I started leaving messages hoping you would find them. And I guess you must have. The strangest part is that Dale swears he was only there for a week. He says he kept going back into the cave, but he only slept a few times while he was away. What's more, the doctors say he doesn't appear to have grown any in the time he was gone. His dental records and growth structure are the same as they were at his last checkup about a month before he disappeared. Glad to have Dale back, but I don't let him play in the cave anymore. We still visit the play park, and I still let him slide on the slides and run on the structure like he used to, but he is forbidden to go underneath anymore. It's a rule he doesn't mind following, lest he get lost in those dark tunnels for a second time. I hope you enjoyed I Miss You, Daddy by Jay Campbell, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed what you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting our website. Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash J dash Campbell. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash J dash C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L. -L. He writes under the moniker Arushas on Reddit, but 
But you can also visit his growing collection of narrations at Dr. Plague World, where he shares his voice with you in his stories, among others. Thanks again for your support of this show and tonight's featured author. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me on this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you've enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as five bucks a month Get access to our entire audio archive, dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases, and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well, at the Otis Jerry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Story Time, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Stay tuned, as the season is just progressing along nicely. Till next week, stay spooky, get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday 
with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.